We have a, a long reading today, and I would invite anyone who feels faint during the process of the reading to please sit down, and everyone else to remind themselves of the Israelites hearing the law read to them for hours on end. So Deuteronomy 15, from verse 1 to chapter 16, verse 17, these are God's words. At the end of every seven years, thou shalt make a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release that which he hath lent unto his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor and his brother, because Yahweh's release hath been proclaimed. Of a foreigner thou mayest exact it, but whatsoever of thine is with thy brother, thy hand shall release. Howbeit, there shall be no poor with thee, for Yahweh will surely bless thee in the land which Yahweh thy God giveth thee for an inheritance to possess it, if only thou diligently hearken unto the voice of Yahweh thy God to observe to do all this commandment which I command thee this day. For Yahweh thy God will bless thee as he promised thee, and thou shalt lend unto many nations, but thou shalt not borrow, and thou shalt rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over thee. If there be with thee a poor man, one of thy brothers, within any of thy gates in the land which Yahweh thy God giveth thee, thou shalt not harden thy heart, nor shut thy hand from thy poor brother, but thou shalt surely open thy hand unto him, and shalt surely lend him sufficient for his need in that which he wanteth. Beware that there be not a base thought in thy heart, saying, The seventh year, the year of release, is at hand, and thine eye be evil against thy poor brother, and thou give him naught, and he cry unto Yahweh against thee, and it be sin unto thee. Thou shalt surely give him, and thy heart shall not be grieved when thou givest unto him, because that for this thing Yahweh thy God will bless thee in all thy work, and in all that thou puttest thy hand unto. For the poor will never cease out of the land, Therefore I command thee, saying, Thou shalt surely open thy hand unto thy brother, to thy needy and to thy poor in thy land. If thy brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, be sold unto thee and serve thee six years, then in the seventh year thou shalt let him go free from thee. And when thou lettest him go free from thee, thou shalt not let him go empty. Thou shalt furnish him liberally out of thy flock and out of thy threshing floor and out of thy winepress. As Yahweh thy God hath blessed thee, thou shalt give unto him. And thou shalt remember that thou wast a he-slave in the land of Egypt, and Yahweh thy God redeemed thee. Therefore I command thee this thing today. And it shall be, if he say unto thee, I will not go out from thee, because he loveth thee in thy house, because he is well with thee, then thou shalt take an awl and thrust it through his ear unto the door, and he shall be thy he-slave forever. And also unto thy she-slave thou shalt do likewise. It shall not seem hard unto thee, when thou lettest him go free from thee, for to the double of the hire of a hireling hath he served thee six years, and Yahweh thy God will bless thee in all that thou doest. All the firstling males that are born of thy herd and of thy flock, thou shalt hallow unto Yahweh thy God. Thou shalt do no work with the firstling of thy herd, nor shear the firstling of thy flock. Thou shalt eat it before Yahweh thy God year by year, in the place which Yahweh shall choose, thou and thy household. And if it have any blemish, as if it be lame or blind, any ill blemish whatsoever, thou shalt not sacrifice it unto Yahweh thy God, thou shalt eat it within thy gates. <clears throat> the unclean and the clean shall eat it alike, as the gazelle and as the heart. Only thou shalt not eat the blood thereof, thou shalt pour it out upon the ground as water. Observe the month of Abib. 
and keep the Passover unto Yahweh thy God. For in the month of Abib, Yahweh thy God brought thee forth out of Egypt by night. And thou shalt sacrifice the Passover unto Yahweh thy God of the flock and of the herd in the place which Yahweh shall choose to cause his name to dwell there. Thou shalt eat no, unleavened bre no leavened bread with it. Seven days shalt thou eat unleavened bread therewith, even the bread of affliction, for thou camest forth out of the land of Egypt in haste, that thou mayest remember the day when thou camest forth out of the land of Egypt, all the days of thy life. And there shall be no leaven seen with thee in all thy borders seven days, neither shall any of the flesh which thou sacrificest the first day at evening remain all night until the morning. Thou mayest not sacrifice the Passover within any of thy gates, which Yahweh thy God giveth thee, but at the place which Yahweh thy God shall choose to cause his name to dwell in, there thou shalt sacrifice the Passover at evening at the going down of the sun, at the season that thou camest forth out of Egypt. And thou shalt roast and eat it in the place which Yahweh thy God shall choose, and thou shalt turn in the morning and go unto thy tents. Six days thou shalt eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day shall be a solemn assembly to Yahweh thy God. Thou shalt do no work therein. Seven days shalt thou number unto thee, that from the time thou beginnest to put the sickle to the standing grain, shalt thou begin to number seven weeks. And thou shalt keep the feast of weeks unto Yahweh thy God with a tribute of a freewill offering of thy hand, which thou shalt give according as Yahweh thy God blesseth thee. And thou shalt rejoice before Yahweh thy God, thou and thy son and thy daughter and thy he-slave and thy she-slave and the Levite that is within thy gates and the sojourner and the fatherless and the widow that are in the midst of thee in the place which Yahweh thy God shall choose to cause his name to dwell there. And thou shalt remember that thou wast a he-slave in Egypt and thou shalt observe to do these statutes. Thou shalt keep the feast of tabernacles seven days after that thou hast gathered in from thy threshing floor and from thy winepress. And thou shalt rejoice in thy feast, thou and thy son and thy daughter and thy he-slave and thy she-slave and the Levite and the sojourner and the fatherless and the widow that are within thy gates. Seven days shalt thou keep a feast unto Yahweh thy God in the place which Yahweh shall choose, because Yahweh thy God will bless thee in all thine increase and in all the work of thy hands, and thou shalt be altogether joyful. Three times in a year shall all thy males appear before Yahweh thy God in the place which he shall choose, in the feast of unleavened bread, and in the Feast of Weeks, and in the Feast of Tabernacles, and they shall not appear before Yahweh empty. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of Yahweh thy God, which he hath given thee. Let's give thanks to God for his word. Father, thank you for the reading of your word, for the recording of your word, that you have preserved it through thousands of years. Thank you that your spirit still works through it. And please send that spirit now into each of our hearts. Plant the word and help it to grow, that we may bear fruit thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. We ask this in the name of Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. I am thankful to God that he has led me to what seems like quite a safe conclusion to our series on vocation. You might remember I said at one point that I could theoretically continue a series on vocation indefinitely because really everything we do in life is something that God calls us to do that we need to grow in or something that he calls us not to do that we need to repent of. But having preached 12 sermons primarily around the various work and works that God calls us to, which obviously is six days of sermons times two, 
I am hard-pressed to call it a coincidence that the 13th and the 14th sermons will turn to the topic of rest. Obviously, that is seven times two. Now, you may be thinking that the reading today was ironically not very restful. I know that it was long, and I'm going to keep the sermon relatively short in comparison, but the reason we had such a long reading was to draw your attention to just how significant the Sabbath pattern is in the law of God. The book of Deuteronomy is basically divided into two halves. The first half summarizes the history of God's dealings with the Israelites in order to establish their obligation to keep his law because of what he has done for them. And then the second half is a series of case laws that are roughly structured around the Ten Commandments. You could think of the second half of Deuteronomy like a series of applications for the Ten Commandments or commentaries on how they work out in real life, how God wants Israel to function with them. And from chapter 1422, which we did not read, to chapter 1647, you have a whole bunch of laws that fall under the Sabbath principle. There are laws that essentially are applications of the command to remember the Sabbath and to hallow it. I didn't include the parts from chapter 14 just for the sake of time, but you are welcome to go back and investigate them as they have to do with tithing, with giving a tenth. But we did read a considerable portion, and that for good reason. When we actually have to stand through the reading of these laws and realize that they are all applications of the Sabbath principle in some sense, it starts to sink in that the Sabbath is not some sort of obscure point in the Ten Commandments, not some kind of random commandment that God added to round out the number to ten. In fact, there are ten commandments because we have ten fingers, but more importantly, we have ten fingers because there are ten commandments. You can think about that later. When you read through the laws that Moses groups together around the Sabbath pattern, you realize that it has to be a significant pattern, a weighty pattern. It literally structured Israel's entire calendar. It was a pattern that was not added for the sake of making Israel unique only and setting them apart from other nations, but for the sake of making Israel an example of a well-ordered society that reflected the creational design of men and also the eternal character of God. And this section of law is by no means the only place where the Sabbath principle is expanded. There are many other places And what this should tell us is the Sabbath command, like all of the Ten Commandments, is a seed that grows in all kinds of ways, some of them much less obvious and expected than others. Think about the other commandments, the Sixth Commandment, thou shalt not murder. That is a seed that grows into all kinds of applications beyond what we might think of as obvious. Obviously, it teaches us that you should not kill people, but it also teaches us that you should not hate people that you should not nurse anger in your hearts, that we should not treat human life lightly. And in fact, it extends as far as telling us that it is wrong to prevent a man from working because we know that if he cannot work, he cannot eat. And if he cannot eat, he cannot live. These are all applications of the sixth commandment. In the same way, the fourth commandment, to remember the Sabbath and to hallow it, teaches us all kinds of things that are not obvious until we reflect on it and until we see how Scripture applies it. The most obvious thing it tells us, however, is that the principle of rest is basic 
to human existence. It's not just a right to rest, it is an obligation to rest and to give rest to those under us. Going even further, it's not just basic to human existence, but it is basic to God's character. We should expect this. If it's basic to human existence, a man is made in the image of God, then there has to be some kind of reflection that we are reflecting, some, some reality that we are reflecting, I should say. Sabbath is a cosmic principle, an eternal principle. It is a very good principle that, contrary to the natural way of man, the way of sin, which is slavery, which calls us only to service, to endless labor in vain pursuit of the flesh. That's what sin does. But while God does call us to service, it is not vain service. And most importantly, it is not endless service. Because after he calls us to serve, he calls us to rest, as he tells us in the Ten Commandments themselves. Remember the Sabbath day to hallow it. Six days dost thou serve, that is the more literal translation there, and do all thy work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath unto Yahweh thy God. In it thou shalt do no work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, thy maidservant, thy livestock, thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days Yahweh made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Now, obviously he did not have to do it that way. He hallowed it for us. He did not have to create the world in six days. He could have created the world in six seconds but then it would have had no applicability to us. We cannot work for six seconds and rest for one. Now, I want to take a step back for a moment and think about where our study of vocation took us in the past few weeks. In looking at the service that God does call us to, we ended up looking at sacrifice. We saw that sacrifice is a creational pattern and that all of our service participates in that pattern in one way or another. We are always giving up of ourselves to something higher, and the thing at the top of that sacrificial hierarchy is God. So we are always giving up to God. Hence, Paul tells us that even in our most mundane work for slaves, they serve the Lord Christ. But now I'd like to suggest a question that we should be asking, because in our reading today, you might have noticed the word sacrifice several times. And that reading is not about daily service, daily work. You might have also noticed that in the reading, there is an explicit command not to work. This section of scripture, these laws, are about the cessation of service. Six days do we serve and do all our work, but the seventh is a Sabbath, and we see how that principle is applied in various ways in these laws. The service ceases. We are to cut it off. And on that seventh day, we are still to sacrifice. That seems rather odd on the face of it because what it means is that God calls us to sacrifice in our daily work and he calls us to sacrifice in our rest, which means that sacrifice has to be an overarching pattern. It has to be a principle that holds both work and rest together. And this is maybe a bit surprising because when you think about work and rest, they don't seem similar. That's the whole point. They are opposite things, about as opposite as you can imagine. And yet we see here that they must both be united in the sense that they are both sacrifices. And although it might be surprising and odd, it's actually quite helpful to us because if we understand that rest should be sacrificial in some sense, then it helps us to learn what rest really is. 
What is it exactly that the Sabbath pattern calls us to? In terms of applying the Sabbath command itself, even the, the basic Sabbath command, you know, rest on the seventh day, it can be pretty difficult to know exactly what it means, especially in the modern day. Sure, we aren't to do our normal work, that's simple enough, but what are we to do? The command is positive as well as negative. We must not work, that's negative, but we must rest, that's positive. So what does it mean to rest? Does that mean that anything goes as long as it's not work? What I want to spend the rest of our time today doing is discerning what exactly the pattern of rest looks like. Can we distill it down into some particular themes or principles? Can we give a basic definition of rest so that we can have an easier time applying it, which is what I will look at next time? Knowing that the Sabbath itself is a pattern of sacrifice will be helpful to us because we already understand the pattern of sacrifice. At least a little bit, right? We understand that it involves participating in a higher good by giving up of ourselves to that higher good. We are brought up the hierarchy. We're made higher ourselves through a kind of disintegration of ourselves so that we can be reintegrated into that higher thing. By the way, if you can come up with any better words than disintegration and reintegration, by all means let me know because I am painfully aware it makes me sound like so much more of a computer nerd than I even maybe am. And I think that one should not be a nerd in the pulpit. One of the principles of sacrifice, actually. I was taught this by, by sacrifice. One of the principles of sacrifice is putting aside the idiosyncrasies of yourself, like nerdiness. To some extent, you disintegrate that part of yourself because it can't be easily reintegrated into the larger body. There's a kind of purifying or distilling that happens in sacrifice. Another great example would be song. This is why God gives us the image of fire, I think, with purifying. I won't linger on that point. I only mention it to illustrate how pervasive the pattern of sacrifice is. And because I really don't want to be using words that feel alien to people, sometimes I just can't find a good balance. I feel compelled to use words that are accurate. And this is the best that I can do right now, but I know it sounds weird, so if you have any alternatives, let me know. Anyway... If sacrifice is a disintegration of some kind and rest involves sacrifice, then rest must involve disintegration. So what is it? What does it look like? How does it work? I think it's helpful to start at the very end of our passage. Verse 17 of chapter 16 says, Every man shall give as he is able according to the blessing of Yahweh thy God, which he hath given thee. This is an application of the Sabbath principle, which I hope you can easily see that it is, being one of the seven-day feasts of Israel. Then what is each man required to give? He's required to give according to the blessing that God has given to him. And what is that blessing? Well, it's not hard to understand. The passage speaks of it several times that we read. For instance, in verse 14 of chapter 15, it says, Thou shalt furnish him liberally out of thy flock and out of thy threshing floor and out of thy winepress, as Yahweh thy God hath blessed thee, thou shalt give unto him. So the blessing is the fruit of one's labors. And this is clearly confirmed in verse 15 of chapter 16, which explicitly connects the blessing to work. Yahweh thy God will bless thee in all thine increase and in all the work of thy hands, and thou shalt be altogether joyful. So when the Sabbath pattern is applied, the sacrifice is the sacrifice of one's work. 
You give up the blessings that God has given to you through your daily service. This makes intuitive sense, doesn't it? Work and rest are opposites, so it makes sense that the sacrifice of the Sabbath rest mirrors the sacrifice of the daily work service. In the daily work service, you give up yourself to the task of dominion, dividing and building, forming and filling. You are taking the raw materials of creation and you are restructuring and refining them into something more orderly, more useful, more blessed. But why? Just for the sake of it? Certainly there's satisfaction and there's fulfillment in the work itself. But no, that, that is not the telos. You know what telos is? Telos is the reason, the goal, the purpose, the objective, what you are aiming at. And the telos of work is Sabbath. For six days, six weeks, six months, six years, six times, you give of yourself to restructure and refine and reorder the world, and then on the seventh time, the results of your labor give of themselves to you. For six days, you give up yourself to your work. On the seventh, your work gives itself up to you. For six days, you disintegrate into dominion. On the seventh day, the dominion gives back and is disintegrated into you. And this is why Sabbaths are always feasts when they are celebrated formally. You can't have a Sabbath without good food. To fast on the Sabbath is not to observe the Sabbath because nothing is being disintegrated into you. To take food into yourself is basic to the Sabbath because it's one of the most basic physical expressions of the Sabbath. But it's not just you that enjoys the food. Thou shalt rejoice in thy feast, thou and thy son and thy daughter and thy he-slave and thy she-slave and the Levite and the sojourner and the fatherless and the widow that are in thy gates. Seven days shalt thou keep a feast unto Yahweh thy God in the place which Yahweh shall choose. Because Yahweh thy God will bless thee in all thine increase and in all the work of thy hands, and thou shalt be altogether joyful. You see very clearly here, the Sabbath pattern is a pattern of celebration. You are celebrating the fruits of your labor. You celebrate the work by enjoying the work, consuming the work, but it is not a celebration alone. There are two other parties to the celebration. The first is God, chapter 16, verse 11. Thou shalt rejoice before Yahweh thy God. And then in the place which Yahweh thy God shall choose to cause his name to dwell there. The Sabbath is hallowed unto God. Just like our daily work is given up to God and through it we participate with him in his work of dominion. So our Sabbath rest is given up to God and through it we participate in his eternal rest. He gives us rest. He participates with us in that rest. He enjoys that rest with us. You cannot have a true Sabbath without God's presence. Only Christians can really observe the Sabbath because the Sabbath is hallowed to God. Hallowed means holy. It is holy to God. Your Bibles might say sanctified. That just means to make holy. Hallowed. God hallowed the Sabbath and the whole pattern of the Sabbath is his, so the Sabbath requires faith. Look at verse 10 of chapter 15. Thy heart shall not be grieved when thou givest unto him. This is giving unto the servant that you set free. Why? Because you have faith that for this thing, Yahweh thy God will bless thee in all thy work, 
and in all that thou puttest thy hand unto. This requires faith. There is a continual cycle of work and rest that is superintended by God through faith, bearing more and more fruit and more and more blessing. You work, you exercise dominion, and God blesses it and gives it back to you to enjoy on the Sabbath, and you in turn give it to others to enjoy. And for your faith, for your imitation of him, God blesses you with more work, which in turn produces more blessing, and so the cycle continues. But only if you work in faith and share in faith. The need for faith also explains why you cannot exact a loan from a brother after the Sabbath year comes, but you can exact it from a foreigner. This isn't referring to people who were foreign in the sense of they're from another country. That, that is what it means because other countries were not God's people. But the point is that one of them is God's people. One of them is not. The people of God enjoy Sabbaths. Foreigners do not. So if you were to apply this principle today, you could apply it to an American. If he was a Christian, you would release him of his debt. If he was not a Christian, you would not have to release him of his debt. The same is true of Kiwis. You can offer them the release if they're not a Christian, but you don't have to. I think you should. I think the pattern that God lays down shows us that it is good to do this, but your obligation is to God and to his people, not to those outside in the same way. And the reason for this is because the Sabbath pattern originates in God himself and extends out from him. It is a pattern of mutual enjoyment which originates in the perfect communion, the eternal society of the triune Godhead. And it is given to us as a gift of that blessed fellowship so that we can be drawn into it also. I say it extends out from him, but really we are drawn into it. But only God's people can truly be drawn into it then. Notice how often Moses speaks of the place that Yahweh causes his name to dwell. That is where we enjoy the Sabbath meal with him. Of course, in the Old Testament, that was the temple. We have to go to him. We are summoned into his presence. Not just any old person can go. And so not just any old person can enjoy Sabbath. I don't know how much you remember of what we learned in our series on worship now. It was a while back. But if you think back to how the Lord's Supper is a feast with God, a mutual participation between us through Christ in this symbolic meal, where we take his body into ourselves, that he abides in us and we abide in him, you can see how obvious it is that the Lord's Supper is a Sabbath. The Lord's Day, when we have the Lord's Supper, it just is a Sabbath. There couldn't be anything else. We are going to the place where God is, which is us, and having a meal with him. A lot of people get hung up on calling the Lord's Day the Christian Sabbath because they're hung up on the specific way that the weekly Sabbath is applied in the Old Testament versus the New Testament, how the Sabbath pattern is applied to the week. It looks quite different. So how can it be the same thing? How can it really be called a Sabbath? Well, because application of the same pattern often does look different when you're adjusting to completely different times and peoples and purposes, but it's still the same pattern. It's still a weekly Sabbath. So to return to my point, the, the Sabbath is a pattern of mutual enjoyment. It is social in nature. 
It is about not just receiving and enjoying gifts from God, but of continuing that pattern downwards. In other words, it is fractal. It repeats at every level. And so we are repeatedly told that we should enjoy Sabbaths with others. Who should they be? Well, thy son, thy daughter, thy he-slave, thy she-slave, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow. Those that are in the midst of thee. Again, when we do this, we are imitating God's own gracious hospitality and gift-giving. The Sabbath is a day for enjoying the fruits of your labors and for bestowing them on others for their enjoyment. A day of receiving God's gifts and giving God's gifts. Not just your family, but your whole household enjoys the fruit of your labor. Your work is disintegrated into all of them, and not just your household, but the men of God who serve among you receive the blessings of your dominion work. At Redwood, whoever preaches is given the blessing of the, the wine to take home and enjoy. This is good and fitting. This is an application, a true application of the Sabbath principle. Although perhaps even more good and fitting if I continue that pattern and share it with everyone who comes to lunch. You are most welcome to share it with me. But it's not just the men of God either, who in the, the church are the, the pastors and the old covenant with the, the Levites. If you're in a society of any kind, you're going to have strangers, you're going to have visitors. And so even today, when so many churches have lost so much understanding of these spiritual patterns, there is still a common instinct among those of them, that most of them, I should say, that um, visitors should be welcomed that visitors should be invited to partake with others of the church in a Sabbath meal. And of course, not just the stranger, but the destitute and the needy also, the fatherless and the widow, without anyone to protect and provide for them. The church takes that over. And it is up to each one of us to take that over also. This is why churches have always had a special place for widows and orphans, obviously even a role for widows to ensure that they were taken care of in the New Testament church. And even today, when the state and not-for-profits have taken over so much, things like soup kitchens and shelters are still often run out of churches because churches understand the Sabbath principle. So when the Sabbath pattern is applied as a celebration, it looks like a feast, but feasting is only one application of the Sabbath principle. Look at chapter 15, verse 2. At the end of every seven years, thou shalt make a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release that which he hath lent unto his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor and his brother, because Yahweh's release hath been proclaimed. You see more clearly here the principle of disintegration from work. A debt puts you under a kind of bondage. For six years, you must serve your debtor, the person who lent you the money, but after those six years, even if you have not fully paid off the debt, the debtor releases you. It's easy to see the obvious connection between release and disintegration. You're no longer integrated into the service of the debtor, so you are given rest. You have relief from your bond. The same principle is in play with the slave, except there, the release is not the only thing emphasized, but the gift-giving nature of the release, the Sabbath, is made explicit. If thy brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, be sold unto thee and serve thee six years, then in the seventh year thou shalt let him go free from thee, so that's the release, and when thou lettest him go free from thee, thou shalt not let him go empty. Thou shalt furnish him liberally. That means freely. You shall give him lots. 
out of thy flock and out of thy threshing floor, so your animals, your grain, and your winepress. Why? Why those three things? Well, they're required for sacrifices. As Yahweh thy God hath blessed thee, thou shalt give unto him. So he is now to take those, and he sacrifices them. He uses them to honor God. So what are the common features of all these applications? I told you I'd keep it short, so I'm going to wrap it up. I want to tie this together in a way that describes what Sabbath means in plain English, without a lot of words. I think there are three ideas, three main ideas at least, that are evident in all of the different ways that the Sabbath pattern is applied. Three things that you really have to have in order to have a Sabbath. The first is a disintegration of work or a release from service. The second is gift giving or hospitality or charity of some kind. And the third is holiness and faith. And you might say a fourth thing that maybe ties them all together is joyfulness. All of this should be joyful. And those aren't necessarily in any particular order. So here is my best effort at putting together a kind of brief definition or description of the Sabbath pattern in a way that captures its essence without applying it in any particular way. Sabbath is a fractal pattern. So in other words, it is a pattern that is repeated downwards. You, we repeat it downwards. And it is a pattern of release from work to enjoy that work in the sight of God. Sabbath is a pattern of release from work to enjoy that work in the sight of God. The next time I want to take this understanding and I want to apply it, how does God call us to rest, specifically as 21st century Westerners? It seems like a fitting question to close our series on vocation, but for now I hope you will take away with you that Sabbath is a pattern that we repeat downward of release from work to enjoy that work in the sight of God. I hope you will reflect upon that for the rest of the day, the rest of the week, and try to apply it for the rest of the day. And we will now try to apply it as we sing Psalm 23.